Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Professor of Christian Ethics and Dean of the Faculty at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Now, we're here today with uh, my colleague in Christian Ethics. It's actually nice to have somebody else in the fraternity here, here with me. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Ken Magnuson, who is Professor of Christian Ethics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's been there since 1999. He also chairs the Department of Worldview and Culture, which sounds a bit like a Department of Philosophy slash Cultural Engagement, yep. Yep. and also directs what's, what is known as the Commonwealth Project on Faith, Work, and Human Flourishing. So our, our interests have coincided pretty significantly over the last few years because I've, I've been involved in a similar project at Talbot That's right. in the area of faith, work, and economics. So yep. appreciate all your good work in these multiple areas. and. I understand how it is to balance uh, bioethics, business ethics, and those d- disparate fields yes, and trying sure. to stay on top of a lot of different things at, at the same time. But you've been working a lot on a, a subject that uh, I think a lot of people thought was maybe a closed subject. You know, 30 or so years ago, we maybe th- thought we resolved all the issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to surrogacy and surrogate motherhood, mm-hmm. uh, what, what, I've, what I've come to refer to it as pregnancy for profit. Uh, for the for the most part, yeah. Um, but that's that, that's not a, not a really a closed book. Issues surrogacy is still alive and well as an issue in in the field today and in broader culture. Uh, and so you've it done is. you've done a lot of thinking about this lately. What uh, what first of all, what motivated you to get into this area? Because as you're as as we've talked, you know, you sort of stepped into the weeds here. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot a lot to sort out. So what motivated yeah. you to dive into this area? Yeah, it started a long time ago. I was doing some work on infertility and reproductive technology as part of my doctoral dissertation because I wanted to take a a moral issue that is not addressed directly in Scripture and think about how the Bible and our theological reflection informs that, you know, thinking in some sense about uh, what to do when the Bible doesn't tell us directly what to do with uh, the the belief that the Bible speaks into these issues. And so I was looking at a lot at in vitro fertilization especially, and, um, and it has the intersection of so many things, of technology, of medicine, of how we understand human personhood, and then, and then marriage and procreation, and, all, and, and then also things like the embryo and how we treat human life at its very beginning. So all those things drew me into looking at in vitro fertilization and um, would I would look at and talk about surrogacy some, but not as much. And partly because it it's not as common and uh, and in vitro involves so many things and but but more recently, it was it was in reading the CT article, Christianity Today article, on uh, America's fertility uh, surrogacy bump, and uh, I just thought this is a really important issue for evangelicals and others to sort out. And clearly, there's there's many who who have have jumped into this, and I don't know how informed uh, they are in jumping into it. So. It's an important issue. Okay, so this article in Christianity Today is is sort of what sparked your yes. revival of interest in this. Uh, you know, just for our listeners, uh, the surrogacy bump refers to it's sort of a play on words. 
Right. Uh, you know, the baby bump in the abdomen, but also right. the, the bump in the growth in surrogacy. The surrogacy industry. Yeah. So they they talked about how it had it was small, but had quadrupled over a, about a decade. And uh, and so when we see something of a trajectory like that, I think it's really important to recognize that this is something that we need to continue to speak into. Okay, so let's be let's sort of start at the at the basics here uh, for, for for the benefit of our, li- of our listeners who might not be aware of what the surrogacy industry is like. There are lots of different ways to do surrogacy arrangements. Yeah, t- tell us about what are the different varieties. Of these arrangements, yeah. So I would I would put it in a couple of different categories. Uh, so types of surrogacy would include what some would call traditional surrogacy or uh, genetic surrogacy. I think you and Joy Riley have called it genetic surrogacy in in um, your book, where the surrogate carrier is also the genetic mother of the child. In the most traditional terms, and the most famous case of that would be Hagar in in the book of Genesis. Uh, where Sarai brings her maidservant to Abram and she, he lies with her and, and they conceive a child. In um, more modern time, it would be the Baby M case out of New Jersey in the mid-80s uh, where she was inseminated with the husband's uh, sperm. And so, the, so there we have traditional... So not, not her husband's. Not with her husband's. With the infertile couple right. okay, just... and taking his sperm... William Stern and uh, and Mary Beth Whitehood Whitehead was um, inseminated with that and and so that would be traditional or genetic surrogacy. Okay, so just you know close the loop on that. What yeah. hap- what happened in the Baby M case? That was a huge case that got not only national attention but worldwide attention because um, Mary Beth Whitehead in the end decided she wanted to keep her baby and give. Back or not received the ten thousand dollars, and so she was granted a uh, um, some days with the child, and she ended up essentially kidnapping or taking the child and fled. And it was I think about a three months search. They found her. Authorities found her in Florida, and in the meantime, the the um, the couple who had commissioned the child, the Stearns, sued for custody. And so the authorities brought the child back. A lower court had ruled that the surrogacy contract was valid and the child would be awarded to the Stearns. But the New Jersey Supreme Court, interestingly, overruled on some points, including saying that Mary Beth Whitehood, Whitehead is the mother of the child. And so it was a, it was a custody issue. And they turned it over to family court. They, they awarded custody to the Stearns largely because of the, what they deemed to be a, a more stable environment. And so it was just a big mess. And uh, as a result of that, a number of countries around the world started ban- and states in the U.S. banned surrogacy. Um, and it's one of those it's one of those problems. You can't it's, it's very difficult uh, for a mother to carry her child and then give up her child. And that was shown and highlighted in that case. So you, you think that the New Jersey Supreme Court actually was correct in ruling that Mary Beth Whitehead was the mother? Certainly. I mean, and, and it, it, interesting thing there 
is that in that case, she was not only the surrogate mother, but also the genetic mother of the child, right? So, yeah, so just for, to make this clear for our listeners, it was her egg, yeah. and she carried the baby to term yes. and gave birth to the child. Yes, absolutely. And so uh, what's, what's really fascinating, and this may be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, but what's really fascinating is that later courts have ruled that even a surrogate who's carrying a child that's not from her egg, that is coming from either the couple who have commissioned the child or some combination with a donor egg or sperm, and the surrogate is only the gestational carrier, courts have ruled that she is a biological parent. She is a biological mother of that child. And so uh, that's without that genetic connection it shows something of an understanding of how important pregnancy or gestation is. So, yeah, it's, I think it's important to recognize that she is a biological mother, not the right. Right. So they recognize the the woman who contributed the egg and the surrogate both as biological mothers. Hey, folks, if you think this is getting complicated, we're just getting started. Yeah. So, so hang in there. That's right. Okay. So traditional surrogacy is one kind. Yes. Okay. What else? So uh, then another form would be we might call gestational surrogacy, where the surrogate has no genetic relation to the child. It's not her egg that is used. So it would most commonly be the the commissioning parents, the husband and wife's uh, sperm and egg, often used with in vitro fertilization, and then they transfer the embryo to the surrogate. It could be a donor egg, it could be a donor sperm, but she's just the, uh, just, in quotation marks, um, the carrier of the child. So it's gestational uh, surrogacy. I love the part you bring out in your in your paper on this, the quote from uh, Friends, yes. Phoebe, who yeah. was, a, was a surrogate in the show, Right. How, did, how did she describe her relationship? So to- she said, so this was her stepbrother and his wife, and she's the gestational carrier. And she said, uh, I'm just the oven. It's totally their bun. Right? <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Okay. Now, you co- you coined some other, I mean, there's some other arrangements. So what are some yeah. of the other permutations so, on this? Besides that sort of category, we can look at uh, another category where there's commercial surrogacy, where the surrogate is paid for her services, usually also, well, her medical expenses would be covered, and then sometimes also lost wages due to pregnancy. And so commercial surrogacy is, is, is awarding her financial compensation. And altruistic surrogacy, the surrogate is simply... Uh, she might receive, well, she would receive medical expenses, but she's doing this for often a friend or a, a family member, or maybe just because she wants to give of herself to somebody in need, but altruistic meaning that she doesn't take um, at least profit. So there's it. no fee. So what, right. So in a commercial surrogacy arrangement, what's kind of, what's the average... I mean, if my wife and I were looking to do this, what kind of check would we, yes. would we have to write? Yes. So, well, that's a good question. So the surrogate is is paid, on average, something around $20,000. But depending on circumstances, that could go as high as 60000 and uh, in addition to other expenses. Um, in terms of the commissioning parents, what 
what they're going to pay, often that is in the range of about eighty thousand dollars total. It may it may depend on whether in vitro fertilization is part of the process, which it often is. And uh, for couples who come on uh, to the United States internationally with travel and everything involved, which is often a um, it's a full package, and that can cost up to two hundred thousand dollars. Yikes! That's an expensive form of it's reproductive very tour- expensive. tourism. Yeah. Uh, now we, there are other parts of the world where this is done quite a bit cheaper. Yes. I take it. Yes. Uh, are, is, so, is there such a thing as outsourcing of surrogacy? Yes. In, in fact, the, t- the two countries that are most prominent in this is the United States and India. So in recent years, one year, I believe it was um, $6 billion spent on surrogacy, and the U.S. was $4 billion of that. So by far the most money spent. But if you look at the most number of surrogates, that's been in India because they're paid quite a bit less. And um, so where I said in the U.S., a surrogate may be paid on average about $20,000. In uh, in India, it would be more like three to $6,000. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. difference. And um, when you compare it to wages in the two countries... You can think about how alluring it might be for a woman in India because it can be up to 10 years of income wow. uh, for carrying a child. That's, uh, you know, that, that's a lot of money. It and, is. Uh, you know, especially for, you know, just nine, nine months of pregnancy, assuming all goes smoothly. Right, right. I've got to be careful with this because we're, we're both we, guys here. I, so, and I um, think we know... That there's plenty of women who would say, I wouldn't carry a child for, for $3,000, exactly. you know, for, for exactly. sure. Exactly. Now, let's, let's go back to that Christianity Today article that sort of that motivated a lot of your thinking on mm-hmm. this. Um, one of the questions it raises is this notion of, is, is fertility a blessing that either could be shared or some would say should be shared? Yeah. Uh, what, do you, what do you think of that statement? Yeah. So one of the things that struck me in the article is that it seemed to be either neutral or uh, sounding like this is, you know, at least presenting the the women who were doing this, that it was something they saw as a way to bless others. And uh, so that they saw it as a certainly as a blessing to be shared, that they could help out. A, a couple or a woman who is uh, unable to carry a child, they saw it as something that the, of a service that they could provide. Uh, do, are, you, are you aware of some Christian women who would enter into surrogacy arrangements as a ministry? Well, there, that's one of the women in the story uh, started a surrogacy agency, and she's a Christian woman. And uh, in fact, between the three women that were profiled in the story, I think they had carried if I remember right, seven children as surrogates, and they had a number of children of their own as well. Um, So let me me take you back. This is a few years ago, um, because I, you know, one of the occupational hazards for both of us of working on some of these things in bioethics is sometimes people in our churches know that we're working on this and they approach us on these things. I had a couple approach me some years ago they knew I'd been thinking about some of this, and they, they came all excited in the parking lot of church and said, 
you, I get the, we get the best news. Our daughter is serving as a surrogate for our daughter-in-law. Mm. Isn't that the most Christ-like thing? Mm. And I, I, I think that's sort of the, the, the ethos of this article. That, yeah. you know, we think, you know, nine months sacrifice to carry a child for someone else sort of sounds like yeah. maybe not, maybe not the epitome of, of Christ-like altruism, but it's pretty close to it. Yeah, it's significant. It is. Yeah. Um, now I think you know, we can probably quibble back and say, well, if it's you know if it's that kind of altruism, then you know let's talk about the fee that's being charged too. Yeah. But I think a lot of people it strikes them as just this being this incredibly compassionate, yeah. sacrificial thing that they would do for another person. Yeah. Uh, how do you respond yeah. to that? Yeah. So I I I could have said when talking about commercial and altruistic surrogacy that only about 2% of surrogates are altruistic. So there's usually a financial transaction. Now I want to, as I look at it, I would say there's multiple motivations. And so I don't think a woman is carrying a child for nine months just to get $20,000. You know, that's a lot of money and that would be tempting, especially depending on where someone is at in their stage in life and things like that. But it's also a huge deal. I mean, I, I know that there's plenty of women who would say $20,000 would not be worth <laughs> what you go through in pregnancy and, and um, labor and delivery. So I don't think it's just about the money. I think there really is... A, a motive to help others, a motive of sacrifice that's involved. And so it's easy to be cynical and just say, this is awful, it's all commercialization. And it is that, but I don't think it's all that. Okay, that, I think that's a helpful distinction, distinction. So you would see this maybe a little differently than a woman, a college-age woman who would sell her eggs on a one-shot mm. thing just to pay a semester's worth of tuition. Yeah, I mean, now, that also is a process that can be painful and a lot of things that go into that, but I do, it doesn't involve the same kind of sacrifice that, or the same kind of commitment, bodily commitment, that surrogacy calls for. Yeah, I think we would, we would certainly want our listeners to know that, that neither of us consider the process of harvesting and selling a woman's eggs to be risk-free. Right, right. Absolutely. Uh, and so we say be, be very careful about that. Yeah. Uh, so let's, let's look. The, the majority of cases today, I take it, are the gestational ones. Mm-hmm. Um, because what the, what the law has upheld makes genetic surrogacy pretty risky. Right. Okay, what makes genetic surrogacy so risky for the couple who contracts with a surrogate? Yeah, well, it's largely that the, if, the, if the surrogate mother decides that she doesn't want to part with the child and wants to keep the child, uh, it's going to involve a significant legal entanglement. And chances are pretty decent, especially if she's a stable, in a stable position, that custody, custody could be awarded to her. And so in, in any case, it's going to be a messy situation. And so that's, that's one of the challenges and one of the reasons why it, it's, it's getting to be pretty rare to see genetic surrogacy. Yeah, sort of, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it sort of sounds like that a, surrog- a genetic surrogate who wants to keep the child is almost like she's been married 
to the natural father of the child and they've divorced mm -hmm. and they've now they're in this you know complicated custody battle. yeah I mean one of the things that I would say is this may be different from state to state I mean one of, we don't have we don't have very good we don't have good at all federal regulation of this whole thing so it depends on the state that they're in and there's uh, but but it would be true in most cases that the judge would or the court would have to treat it as though here's two parents of this child. How do we negotiate this uh, settlement? Okay, and in a gestational surrogate, you know, where we've basically, you know, divvied up the the biological contribution yeah. among two different women. How do you sort out who's yeah. the mother there? Yeah. So that was that was one of the most fascinating things to me as I started reading into this, because I I think for a lot of us we would naturally think that the surrogate is carrying the child, but she's not the mother of the child, and and so the one who contributes the egg is the mother of the child certainly, and in in cases where the egg might be donated you have a, a whole additional social mother of the child who's commissioning this. So, I mean, you talk about it getting kind of confusing. But what was fascinating to me is how courts have ruled that the surrogate mother is equal in terms of a biological mother of the child. And, and therefore, the, only, the, the reason that uh, they have awarded custody or given the commissioning parents the child is because they had entered into a contract. And so they're saying it is the freedom of contract that rules over this situation. That's been the case in California in particular. And uh, so, uh, but just the recognition by the court that the gestational mother, the mother carrying the child, is an actual biological mother because of how uh, intimate uh, pregnancy yeah. is and the exchange yeah. between the mother and child in pregnancy. Yeah. Again, again, a biological mother, not a biological not mother. The. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, what about the kind of the contract part? Um, cause I, I sort of get the idea that, you know, these are, these are, you know, big boy, big boys and girls entering, yeah. entering into these arrangements that a, a deal's a deal. Yeah. Why should a surrogate be able to back out of a deal that she's made, you know, right. say six, seven months into it? Right. When the contracting couples already started, you know, they may already have a nursery and already bought all the stuff. Absolutely, and, yeah. Um, They've planned this out as much as any parents have mm -hmm. planned out the pregnancy and, and child. And I think it's, I think it's the, the, the proper um, intuition for us and the proper argument to say that freedom of contract is very strong, especially in the United States, that we are free to enter into contract with one another um, for all kinds of services and things, and we want to protect that. Uh, the question is whether freedom of contract can be applied in every situation. And there's there's an article that, that I've found to be very helpful that we've talked about briefly, but in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy by Adeline Allen called surrogacy and limitations to freedom of contract toward being more fully human. Uh, it was published in 2018. And I think she's, she's right to say that there are some things that we cannot contract into, such as prostitution would be an example. Another example would be slavery. 
to to sell ourselves into slavery, particularly in you know a classic sense of of lifetime mm-hmm. servitude and that kind of thing. So there are some things that, even though in one sense we could enter into freely, the state has um, an interest in making sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, I suspect that if uh, if you and I decided to settle some of our theological differences with pistols at 20 paces, right. and we signed a contract that we were going to do that, right. and all of a sudden I get nervous because you're a better shot than I am, and I back out of it, you're not, you can't take me to court for breach of contract. Right. This, the um, court will not stand with me on that. And which I, I'm, I'm grateful it's for. A, it's a good it's thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. Okay. So, Ken, what, uh, you know, we sort of talked a little bit about the landscape of surrogacy. What, what, what reservations do you have? What troubles you about surrogacy, the way it's practiced today, yeah. the surrogacy industry? Yeah. Um, but what, what bothers you about it? When, when I started thinking about, you know, what would be my reservations, especially in response to the Christianity Today article, I thought about two or three things. By the time I was done reading and reflecting um, on a number of, of uh, cases and on, on the meaning of procreation and marriage and one flesh and, and of the connection between parents and children and all of these things, I had 10 things that concerned me uh, and concerned me enough that I would argue that we should not um, enter into a surrogate relationship, that we should not permit surrogacy uh, because of these concerns. And uh, uh, among them... It, uh, Let's say, yeah. what, of those 10, what's, what's at the top of the list? You know, I, I think that I would say um, exploitation, the, the, the possibility of exploitation is very strong uh, when you're talking about um, a, a woman who is in great financial need and the option of, of you know, making some money by uh, carrying a child in her womb, uh, especially when it can be she might find it easier to justify because she's helping somebody out. Mm-hmm. So that would be one thing. Well, if you, yeah, if you put it into the mix, too, you probably have infertile couples with varying degrees of desperation. Yeah, yeah, um, that's right. That's right. You, the, the couple that long deeply for a child, and it's a good desire to long for a mm-hmm. child, uh, can, can easily um, move in directions that I think are, are not... Uh, helpful or or good for them. Uh, do, do you see that possibility for exploitation more so in the U.S. or in places like India? I, I think it's especially especially acute in a place like India uh, because of, of poverty being a, a much bigger problem. And even even though they would be paid much less in terms of what that means to them, it's a huge amount of money. And, uh, and this is in a country where I, th- I think it's very different, but there's at least a parallel that, that some people would be coerced into or exploited into selling their, an organ, you know, a kidney or something. And uh, so in the U.S., it's, it's not as great a problem, but I think there's, there's 
uh, coercion that can be subtle and exploitation, whether or not we recognize it. I think it is, it is well documented, in, at least in, in India, that uh, the, the, a lot of the women who serve as surrogates are sort of under, under the authority of the broker who arranges mm-hmm. the deal. And the broker has, can, some, oftentimes has, has a lot of restrictions that they place on the women, on the women mm-hmm. when during their pregnancy, sometimes amount to what I would consider close to being under house arrest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they have nothing, you know. Their desperation for the money prevents them from, you know, from resisting that. Or you know, once you're pregnant, it's kind of hard to walk away yeah. from the deal. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's right. Uh, what What about the? Um, I know you you have a concern about the the bonding that takes place during pregnancy and yeah. you know, what happens to that in a surrogacy arrangement. I take yeah. it that's pretty high up on the list too. Yeah, that that is, was one of my chief concerns in this because I I think that as as I look at it, it's part of God's design that. The, the bond between husband and wife is extended in procreation to a child and that that begins in, in uh, pregnancy. And the bond is particularly strong between the mother and child in pregnancy. And this is, this is not merely an emotional bond, but it is an emotional bond. And um, she's the first to become aware of the child inside of her, you know, and uh, and, it, and by the way, it goes two ways too. She's bonding with the child, but the child is also bonding with the mother. And uh, the mother's voice is is something that the child will recognize and uh, and and hear. And her heartbeat is uh, the rhythm of the child's life. And and so, and then there's um, through the umbilical cord. There's an exchange that is is much one way, but. There's an influence on the mother as well with hormones and things like this. And so it's an emotional bond, but it's more than that. And there's a, there's a field of science called epigenetics that is a little bit beyond what uh, I've done a lot of work in. But it's showing that there's actually a physiological bond between mother and child. And one of the things that they um, have observed is that a mother may, in, for, for a number of reasons, and it may be willful or maybe circumstances that she doesn't bond with the child. It may be a pregnancy she doesn't want. But it's interesting in the case of surrogacy, it's, there's a, it's sort of a conflict here because it's not a pregnancy that she doesn't want so much as a pregnancy that she needs to distance herself from. And so there's some similarities there. And there's research that shows, for instance, that where bonding is weaker during pregnancy, things like postpartum depression is greater. And so it, it just signals that there's a strong bond that takes place between mother and child in pregnancy that is deliberately um, distanced. And, and I, I think that's a significant issue, a significant problem. So that's not that's not something we would want to encourage, even in the name of altruism. Absolutely, for, for absolutely. For the sake of the mother carrying the child, because I think she has to, in some sense, detach herself from something that God has designed for her to attach herself to. But also for the sake of the child, because the child is is completely bonded to to that mother. And one of the things that uh, several people talked about 
in their observations is how the most natural thing, the thing that a child cries out for upon birth is to be laid on his or her mother's chest. And, and that's a, such a significant time. But in surrogacy, very often they whisk the child away directly to the, the well, perhaps intermediate care and then on to the commissioning parents. And I think that leaves both the child and the mother in a very, uh, very difficult position. Well, I mean, it sounds like as, as well, sort of theologically, and I, I would share your view on this too, that uh, you'd be pretty skeptical of any third-party inter- interventions into the, the matrix of marriage as far as procreation goes. And I like the way you put that, that uh, the husband-wife bond is designed to be extended mm-hmm. when it comes to, to procreation. So that would, yeah. that, that would render skepticism about egg donors, sperm donors, yeah. and wound donors yeah. in the case of surrogacy. Yeah, that's a, that's a strong objection I have that I've explored a little bit more with respect to in vitro fertilization where donor sperm or don- donor egg are used. It's the introduction of a third party into that marriage and family relationship. And I think that's, that's a, a problematic thing. But I think it does extend to surrogacy as well because otherwise we're seeing that surrogate mother as... Well, like Phoebe in Friends said, you know, just the oven, you know, just as a gestational carrier, as though the womb is something out for hire. Human encounter. Right. And we know that it's a much deeper human experience than that. And I just talked about the the mother and child bonding. But what happens in pregnancy uh, when things go as they should, I think, is that it's also a time where the mother and father bond further and the father and the baby bond. And and yeah, so right. all that is disrupted in surrogacy, perhaps in the name of altruism, but I don't think that justifies it. Well, I, I know there's, there's a lot more that we could talk about on this and maybe, maybe we'll have to come back and do mm-hmm. some more discussion on IVF and some of these other reproductive technologies that I know you've thought an awful lot about. But I think this gives us a lot of good food for thought. Uh, and we're not, you know, you're not denying how painful infertility is. No, not at all. But just, you know, taking this option for a Christian couple uh, and having pretty significant reservations about, yeah. about surrogacy. No, I, what, that's right. One of the things that, that I try to convey as clearly as I can to my students when I talk about reproductive technology is that Infertility is a deeply painful experience, and the Bible attests to this both directly in Proverbs 30, 15, and 16, but also by uh, the experience of, of, uh, of barren women in the Bible. And so I think we need to have deep compassion for those who are suffering. Uh, studies show that the suffering of infertility is just below cancer patients in terms of the intensity and things like that. So we absolutely need to know that and to care for those who are suffering infertility. I just think that there are some things that ought not to be pursued. Here, here. Thanks, Ken. We really appreciate your insight on this, particularly the good work that you've done on surrogacy most recently, but also sort of the long tradition you've had of good, solid work in Christian ethics, particularly in bioethics, Mm. in these areas of reproductive technology. Well, thank you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, it's been great to have you with us. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Dr. Ken Magnuson, 
And to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash think biblically. That's biola.edu forward slash think biblically. If you've enjoyed conversation with Dr. Magnuson today, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening. And remember, think biblically about everything.